Hello. Welcome to the myths and history of Greece and Rome. Chapter 119, Empire of Gold. The emperor, Leo V, was so troubled he couldn't sleep. He had in his jail his old friend Michael the Amorian. He had been trying to decide whether to have Michael executed, and it was affecting his sleep. He was so troubled that on Christmas Eve 820, he decided to go and see the prisoner. Leo let himself into the jail with his own key, and was very angry to find the jailer was asleep. Michael was asleep as well. Leo checked by listening to his breathing. The angry emperor silently shook his fist at the two men and left. Unfortunately for Leo, there was another person in the room. One of Michael's servants had been smuggled in and was hiding under the bed. The clever servant woke Michael and the jailer. He told them what had happened and that he knew it was the emperor who had been in the room because he saw the purple boots. The jailer was terrified. He knew the emperor had seen him sleeping on the job and he knew how much trouble he was in. Michael convinced him to go into the city and round up the Amorian supporters. In the night, the supporters came and the prisoner was rescued from his jail. Still in his chains, he was disguised by his friends as a monk. Michael and his men made their way to the palace chapel, where they knew the emperor would come in the morning to celebrate Christmas. Leo and a priest arrived in the chapel very early in the morning and were set upon by Michael and his supporters. Leo had time to grab a heavy cross from the walls of the chapel to defend himself, but there were just too many of them, and so, early on Christmas morning 8.20, Leo V was murdered. He was 45 years old and had been emperor for seven years. Michael the Amorian was now placed on the throne, still in chains. They were only just cut off in time for him to be crowned as the new Basileus of the empire. Soon he raised his teenage son, Theophilus, to the rank of co-emperor. Michael II had come to the throne by assassinating the old emperor. This had happened many times before, but never had anyone who had killed a good emperor managed to take the throne for himself and hold on to it. Michael, though, was accepted, despite the fact he had murdered Leo without any decent excuse and was barely able to write his own name. He was accepted by everyone, that is, except the fourth member of the party that had visited the hermit all those years ago. Thomas the Slav was perfectly happy to serve under Leo the Armenian, but he wasn't prepared to serve under Michael the Amorian. But what about the prophecy? Leo the Armenian and Michael the Amorian had risen to the purple. If the whole prophecy were to be correct, then Thomas the Slav was not going to succeed. Thomas realised this, and so he made no attempt to seize the throne. That would make no sense at all, would it? He had been told he would nearly make it, but not quite, so why bother? Well, of course, that's not true. He did bother, and the prophecy was as accurate as it had been about the other three rebels. Thomas began to hint to the people that he was, in fact, Constantine VI. Somehow he had miraculously survived being blinded and now was coming back to claim the throne that was rightfully his. This was obviously complete nonsense, and many people knew it, particularly those who had been at the old emperor's funeral. But some people will believe anything, and some people like a rebellion, whether there's a good reason or not. So Thomas was accepted as emperor in a large part of the empire. The story that Thomas the Slav tried to pass himself off as Constantine VI only began to surface some time later, so it's perfectly possible it was not the case at the time. Whatever the declared reason though, there were many actual reasons why some people preferred Thomas to Michael. He was very popular in the provinces, while Michael was virtually unknown. Michael also had a pronounced stammer, which sometimes got in the way of his ability to display the workings of his sharp mind. Leo V had been a popular Basileus, and Thomas fought under the banner of revenge for the former emperor's overthrow. 
Thomas the Slav was a senior military commander as the reign of Michael II got underway, but he was not that senior. Somehow, though, he managed to pull two-thirds of the Asian army behind his revolt. Only the Opsikian and Armeniac themes remained loyal to the emperor. By some clever diplomacy and some impressive shows of force, Thomas managed to get the Abbasid Caliph al-Mamun on his side. He recruited men for his forces from Arab ranks and was eventually crowned emperor by the patriarch of Arab-held Antioch. Thomas the Slav eventually raised a massive army of 80,000, including Goths, Slavs, Huns, Arabs and many other people. He and his huge force marched on Constantinople and in 821 laid siege to the city. The walls of Constantinople were too strong for the Arabs, too strong for Crum and the Bulgars, and were to prove too strong for Thomas the Slav. Two attempts were made to storm the fortifications, one during the winter in 821 and the other in the spring of 822. Both were equally unsuccessful. The emperor and his son Theophilus both proved themselves to be good generals and a large number of men in Thomas's army lost their lives. In the meantime, the supporters of the Amorian collected a fleet of 350 ships in the Greek islands. This force, having gained a complete victory over the fleet of Thomas, cut off the besiegers from communication with their supporters in Asia. Thomas would not give up though, and the siege continued until Crum's son Ormatag joined in the fun. He had negotiated a 30-year truce with the Empire and decided to offer to help get rid of the Slav. Michael refused, but the Bulgars came anyway. The Bulgar army destroyed Thomas's force and then plundered Thrace, stealing anything and everything they could find. The Bulgar army returned home, their packs filled with treasure, and Ormotarg felt extremely pleased with himself. Thomas kept trying, but he had no chance once his army had been smashed by the Bulgars. Eventually he was captured and thrown before the Emperor in chains. His hands and feet were cut off, and the rest of him was impaled on a spike. The rebellion was over. Michael, feeling confident that he had a peaceful empire, at least for a while, decided he wanted to make sure that his family would continue to rule. For this to happen, his son needed to start a family, and in order to do that, he needed a wife. Not only did he need a wife, thought Michael, he needed a beautiful wife, so Michael held a bride parade. He brought all of the best-looking girls from wealthy families for Theophilus to choose from, and the young man chose a beautiful Paphlagonian girl from an important family called, of course, Theodora. For the rest of his reign, Michael II ruled sensibly and reasonably well. He continued the iconoclasm of Leo V, but like Leo, didn't make too big a thing of it. As his reign settled down, he became quite popular with the most important Christian holy men. As far as he was concerned, people could worship privately as they wished, as long as they didn't rock the boat. His policy of moderation worked, and there were very few ecclesiastical difficulties during his time on the throne. The empire, though, was continually raided by the Arabs during the reign of Michael II, and the islands of Crete and Sicily were lost. Muslim pirates made Crete their home base, and it became known as the Pirate Caliphate. Michael the Amorian died peacefully in his bed on the 2nd of October 829. He was the first emperor to die of natural causes without being overthrown since Leo IV nearly 50 years before. Michael II was 59 years old when he died, and had ruled the empire for nine years. During his reign, the empire lost a bit more territory, but was, at last, stable. The tide had turned a little, and the empire was, very surprisingly, soon to enter a new age of glory. It's very difficult to know what to make of the emperor Theophilus, who ascended to the throne on his father's death. 
Of all of the emperors of the late empire, he's the one who historians disagree about most wildly. Some see him as one of the best emperors who ever ruled from Constantinople, and some see him as a mediocre emperor whose reign was not very important. We shall see what we think about this. Either way though, it's clear that Theophilus was a colourful and interesting character, with a gift for the spectacular. It's easy to see that Theophilus was very different from his father. Michael, it said, took longer to write the six Greek letters of his name than it took most people to read a whole book. Theophilus was intelligent and cultured, and received the best education possible. He was an expert in law, philosophy and literature, and developed strong views on religion. He set about imposing iconoclasm on his empire a little more strongly than his father, but he was nothing like as fanatical as Constantine Capronimus. He'd been taught by a very learned churchman called John the Grammarian, who was one of the staunch iconoclasts from the days of Leo V. Theophilus, it seems, was also very lucky. At some point towards the end of the reign of his father, the empire suddenly became very wealthy. Many historians think that new sources of gold were discovered, and new mines were opened, so the precious metal was available in greater quantities than ever before, but nobody really knows. Theophilus used a lot of the gold well to strengthen the city walls and the army, but he also spent it on the most magnificent building campaign since Justinian the Great. The Great Palace was completely rebuilt. It had originally been constructed on the orders of Septimius Severus over 600 years earlier, and had been remodelled by Justinian. Theophilus ordered it to be redesigned so that it was the most beautiful and magnificent palace the world had ever known. The builders succeeded. The palace was absolutely splendid in every way, but the most magnificent part was the throne room. Try to picture the scene. In the centre was a huge gold throne on which the emperor sat to receive guests from other empires. Behind the throne was a huge tree made entirely of gold. Its branches hung down over the throne so they sparkled above the emperor's head as he entertained his guests. On the branches of the tree and on the throne itself were golden birds so detailed they looked as if they were alive. Around the trunk of the tree were golden lions and griffins. This was pretty spectacular in itself, but the most amazing part only became apparent when the guests were sat talking and the emperor gave a signal. Suddenly there would be organ music and the birds would begin to sing. Then the lions would roar and their tails would twitch as if they had come to life. The noise was deafening and the guests must have been terrified, but the spectacle was certainly magnificent. The legends of the wonderful art and gold in the court of Theophilus appear in the literature of the Muslims and found their way into the famous tales of the Arabian Nights. The artists of the empire did very well under Theophilus. He loved Roman art and culture, and also Arab art and culture. He was very fond of the Arabs and tried to keep the peace with them whenever possible. As we will see though, this was mostly not possible. Theophilus liked everything to be splendid, and liked to do everything in a splendid way. Once a week he would ride from the great palace across the city on his beautiful horse, dressed in his imperial clothing. Now, we've heard about Irene and how she did this and threw coins at the crowd to get them to love her, but they hated her. So, surely it was the same for Theophilus, wasn't it? He spent loads of cash on nice buildings and gold mechanical lions, and rode across the city looking completely splendid, which made the poor people of the capital feel even poorer. Obviously they couldn't stand him. Well, no, actually they thought he was great. And why? Because he had a sense of justice and the willingness to be compassionate and fair that was almost as strong as those of Marcus Aurelius and Antoninus Pius. 
When Theophilus took his weekly trip through Constantinople, he would encourage the people to come and speak to him. This was something which was virtually unheard of in the late Roman Empire, an emperor who actually spoke directly to the people. Not only that, he would ask them to tell him if they had a legal problem that he could help them with. Theophilus would listen, and if he thought he needed to make the situation right, he would give a judgement and order it to be carried out. This hadn't happened since the days of the Principate. Once, a woman claimed to Theophilus that the emperor's own brother-in-law was building his new house so high it blocked the light and meant her house was too dark. Theophilus looked into it and found it was true. He ordered his brother-in-law to tear down his house and build a lower one. Later, he found out the silly man hadn't done as he was told, so the emperor had his house torn down and the man flogged in the street. Another day, a man went up to the emperor and patted his horse. Emperor, he said, the horse you are riding is mine. It was stolen from me by one of your soldiers. Theophilus investigated and found this was also true. The officer was punished and the man was given two pounds of gold in compensation, far more than the horse was worth. Once a week, the emperor would also walk through the streets of the city in disguise and talk to the people and then he would buy things just to check the prices were fair. Theophilus quickly became a legend in his own lifetime. The people, although they never really loved him in the way they loved Aurelian, thought he was pretty amazing. He was also popular with the army and the church, and there were no serious rebellions at all throughout his whole reign, which was pretty remarkable, especially given his father had come to the throne so violently by murdering the previous, pretty good, emperor. Theophilus was as concerned about the defences of the empire as he was about palaces, and spent a lot of his new gold strengthening the walls of Constantinople, especially the sea walls, he kept the army well-trained and well-manned in case of invasion. Unfortunately, Theophilus was not as successful in keeping the empire safe from attack from the east. Strangely, since he was probably the most Arab-friendly emperor ever, he spent most of his reign at war with the Caliph. He started off okay. He sent John the Grammarian to Baghdad with magnificent gifts of gold to tell the Caliph he had succeeded his father. Soon after, though, some people who were being badly treated in the Arab Empire crossed into imperial territory. Theophilus welcomed them. He thought they would be a handy buffer between his empire and the Arabs, so he created a new theme called Chaldea and settled them in it. The Caliph, a man we have met called Mamun, decided this was an act of war and he would come and take revenge. The war also started off okay. The imperial army captured the city of Zapetra in 830, and then went further into Arab territory and invaded Sicilia. Theophilus was pleased enough to return to the capital and celebrate a triumph. The army was soon being driven back though, and it was only the death of Mamun in 833 that stopped the war for a while. In 837 though, when the next caliph felt strong enough, the war kicked off again. Again the fighting started well for the empire, and Theophilus celebrated yet another triumph. He even entered the games which followed, and, not very surprisingly, won every event that he entered. The people shouted, Welcome, Champion Incomparable! Just as before, though, the situation turned against the Empire. The new Caliph, Mutasim, wanted proper revenge, and he knew how he was going to get it. The ruling dynasty was now nearly 20 years old. It was called the Amorian Dynasty, after the hometown of Michael the Amorian. Mutasim decided he was going to destroy the imperial family's home city. Now that is the way to get revenge. The Caliph marched his massive army into imperial territory. There were 50,000 men, 50,000 camels and 20,000 mules. 
It was one of the biggest armies seen for many years, and they carried banners on which was written a single word, Amorium. Theophilus heard about the invasion and marched out to meet the Arabs. The two armies met at Dazimon, and the battle, like all others, started well for Theophilus, but it didn't carry on like that. As the battle raged, Theophilus realised that part of the army was being overwhelmed, so he ordered 2,000 of his cavalry troops to follow him and help the soldiers who were being driven back. He led the attack with bravery, but he forgot to tell his officers what he was doing, so nobody knew where he'd gone. A rumour started that the emperor was dead, and the army panicked. The battle was lost, and only the emperor and a small number of soldiers escaped with their lives. In 838, Emorium was destroyed. Theophilus appealed to the western emperor, Louis the Pious, for help, but the talks took two years and got nowhere. The only happy event for the emperor at this time was the birth of his son. After having five daughters, Theophilus' wife finally gave birth to Michael in 840. Theophilus was delighted, but became worried that his sister's husband, Theophobus, who was descended from the Persians, might try and take the throne from his rightful heir. Theophilus, the emperor of gold, never really recovered from what had happened to Emorium, and it became clear in 842 that he was dying. He prepared for his death with great courage, but became more and more worried about Theophobus, and in the end ordered that the Persian be beheaded. He demanded the head be brought to him, and when he saw it he said sadly, At last you are no longer Theophobus, and I am no more Theophilus. The emperor turned away, sank his head onto the pillow, and died, aged just 38. He had reigned with splendour, but eventually with sadness, for 12 years. Next time, we'll see what happens when Theophilus's two-year-old son becomes Emperor of the Romans. If you're enjoying the podcast, or if you'd just like to give some feedback, then please contact me by email, mythandhistory at gmail.com, or friend me on Facebook, Paul Vincent Myth and History. Go and check out the website, www.mythandhistory.podbean.com where you'll find links to every episode and a few other things. On the website is a donation button. Obviously, the podcast is and will continue to be entirely free, but all donations really are gratefully received. So, have a great couple of weeks and I'll speak to you next time.